0: Palm Sunday is the day in the church year when traditionally we mark the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. It's an event of great insight and great misunderstanding. The great insight was that this Jesus really is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. He was the Messiah, the Son of David, the long-awaited ruler of Israel, the fulfillment of all God's promises. But the great misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem by his mighty works, take his throne, and make Israel free from Rome. And the question I want to begin with is this. Why did this misunderstanding take place? How did the people of Jesus' day get it so wrong? And because they committed a common mistake that we all do in our lives, they decided to pick and choose passages about the Messiah that fit the narrative they wanted to create, and therefore they excluded passages that they didn't like. And one of the passages that greatly fit the narrative of a mighty Messiah who would come, wipe out the enemies of God, and set his people free was Psalm chapter 2. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The Jews of Jesus' day thought that the Messiah would be endowed with miraculous powers, and mighty in in, and wise in the Holy Spirit. The Messiah would be holy and free from sin, the final anointed one and true king of Israel who would destroy God's enemies by the word of his mouth. He would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles, gather the faithful from dispersion, and rule in justice and glory. To, To set the scene here, the Jews are in an incredibly frustrated and desperate people on this day that Jesus is entering into the city on this donkey. For 400 years, God has not spoken to the people of Israel. When the prophet Malachi closed out his letter, those were the final words that God would speak to the people of Israel for 400 years. In his very last statement, Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Two hundred years before that, they had seen the nation of Israel overrun by the kingdom of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. They had seen the temple destroyed. They had been dispersed and scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth. Where only 400 years previous, a 1,000 years before Jesus took on flesh and entered into our setting here upon this earth, David and Solomon ruled the world. The pinnacle of all Israeli history is when Solomon ruled the world. Other rulers from around the world were coming, making years-long journeys, just to hear the wisdom that Solomon would speak, just to see the wealth that he had accumulated. So from this pinnacle mountaintop moment for the last thousand years, they have been oppressed, much because of their own doing and because of their own sin. But yet they now find themselves occupied by Rome, wishing that they could do anything anything to overthrow these pagan Gentiles. They were desperate for a king. But the king they wanted, the one they had built up in their mind was not the king who would show up. The king who would show up was lowly and riding on a donkey. Back in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 35. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. In Matthew chapter 21, Matthew adds a note to this scene that we don't get here in the gospel of Luke. In chapter 21, verses 4 and 5 of Matthew, he says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9, a passage that had been written 500 years before this scene took place. And so you you have to understand that that when a king in Jesus' day would go out to battle with his army and he would come back a victorious and conquering king, it was well known that he would come back no longer on his war horse, but on that of a donkey to say that the enemy had, had been subdued, the enemy had been conquered. So picking up this familiar image, Jesus does the same thing. But yet when this normal king would come back in this victorious fashion, as he would enter into the city, there would be the people lined up and there would be songs of praise sung in his honor. They would acclaim that he was the conqueror, he would come with these symbols of victory and authority. And finally, as he would enter in through the gates of the city, the first place he would go would be into the temple of that city where he could offer sacrifices to their gods. Picking up this imagery that was so familiar with people, Jesus, the triumphant king, would come to offer himself as a sacrifice to God. So we can see in our minds that Jesus is going to begin this ascent up the hill into the city on this donkey. And you have to understand that there would be Jews from all over the region and all over the world gathered. We are at the time of Passover. It is said that there would have been hundreds of thousands of extra people in and around Jerusalem getting ready for the Passover feast that would take place that had been going on for over a millennia now. And with the city bulging with all these people, we see Jesus begin to make his climb into the city in verse 36. And so you have to understand the symbolism of them throwing their coats along the ground was them as a people, those disciples, saying, Jesus, we honor and submit to you. This is a symbol of honor and submission. It's to say, I would lay my life down beneath your feet as my king. We place ourselves under your feet, King Jesus. We place ourselves in submission to you. And so here we have this scene that the king is there. So naturally they are thinking the kingdom must follow. And this fever pitch begins to escalate among all those who are looking on and wondering what it is that is taking place of this man riding on this donkey into the city because they did not know that they were at war. He will be their king. He will bring fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham and to David and the prophets. He will conquer our enemies. He will establish Jerusalem and a kingdom from Jerusalem that will cover the entire world. That was their anticipation in this moment as they throw their cloaks upon the ground. And as they begin to shout with their voice, and it says the whole crowd of the disciples begin to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. Their hopes are high, and they're shouting, Blessed is the King who comes, the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Yahweh's king entering into the city, the thing they have been waiting on for over a thousand years. And here he is, the promised king, priest, and prophet of God. This is now the hour of peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew adds. Most of the multitude spread their garments on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees, spreading them on the road. That is why we call this Sunday Palm Sunday. Because when they would cut those palm branches and they were laying those palm branches on the road, this symbol in the nation of Israel, this is a symbol of salvation. This is a symbol of incredible joy. So you see Jesus the King entering into the city. You see the people throwing their cloaks down on the ground in submission to Him. You see them cutting palm branches and fanning and laying them on the ground saying, Finally, this great symbol of salvation has arised. This thing that God has planned before time began is now taking place in front of us. And they are rejoicing and singing and shouting. But yet not all were pleased with what was taking place. In Luke 19, 39-40, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now notice, the king is coming into his city, but they refuse to acknowledge him as their king. The best they can muster up is, Teacher, Rabbi, tell those people to be quiet. And I hope you can appreciate in this moment what I've spent an entire week thinking about Jesus' statement here. That this moment is so full of glory and honor and praise that if the people did not shout out in this moment the inanimate rocks along the ground. I thought of it, the inanimate stones in their buildings would have shouted the highest praise, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Nothing was going to stop this praise. Nothing was going to stop this celebration. For this is something that God Almighty has orchestrated and ordained would take place exactly in this way. So we come to this moment where we see in this scene the disciples praise and worship. We see the Pharisees reject and hate. But there's also another group there, the undecided. Those those who have heard the stories about Jesus they're, they're kind of interested because they've heard the signs. They've heard about this guy who heals the sick. They've heard about this guy who raises the dead because the Lazarus story in the book of John takes place right before this. So they're very curious, but they yet haven't made this final decision in their own hearts and minds of who Jesus is? Are they going to go the way of the disciples and throw their cloaks along the ground and cut palm branches believing that He is this symbol of joy and salvation? Or are they going to be like the Pharisees and reject Jesus and call Him nothing but a teacher? But don't miss this. All three groups, whether the disciples, whether the Pharisees, whether the undecided and curious, they were all faced with one question that Jesus had previously asked his disciples back in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I love this passage, and I love the two passages that follow. I want you to understand what is taking place when Jesus asked the disciples this question. This scene takes place at Caesarea Philippi, and I've had the honor and privilege of going there. And it's an amazing place. And it's about 50 miles removed from where they are currently in the city of Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. Jesus has taken his disciples out to this place, a very strategic place to where he asked this question, because in this location is the temple of Pan. And the temple of Pan, if you know anything about the word pan, it basically means all. So pantheism is this word that just kind of includes everything. So in this setting and the background of the temple of Pan, where people are coming from all over the place, Jesus asks a very specific and pointed question. Who do the people say that I am? Now, like good Jewish young men, they said, Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, because those would have been the standard Jewish answers. But yet there were people all around them who were the pagan Gentiles who were worshiping other gods, worshiping other goddesses. So in this scene, in this setting, with all of this taking place, Jesus asks this question, and he points it directly at his disciples in the midst of all the answers swirling around about me in the world and all the possibilities, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the one who cannot keep his mouth shut on this day, aces the test like no other, right? You are the Christ. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for only my Father has revealed this to you. And then this statement that repeats itself over and over and over in the gospel of Mark, Jesus says, don't tell anybody who I am. We call this the messianic secret. Why is it when Jesus goes and he casts demons out of people and the demons go, we know who you are. You're the son of God. And he's like, shut your mouth. Why does he say this? Why does he tell people after he heals them? Do not tell anybody what I've done for you. And it's because of the great misunderstanding that is taking place in today's passage. They only had room in their minds for a king who would come once and overthrow the enemies of God, and restore the nation of Israel. They had no room in their lives, no room in their theology of a lamb and suffering servant. See, they loved those passages of Psalm 2. But yet, even today, the Jewish people, 2,000 years removed, From the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, are still blinded by the God of this world to passages just like Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The reason he told them to not tell anyone, because no one in that day understood that the lamb must come before the lion. They all wanted the lion. They wanted the lion to come and to destroy the enemies of God. The disciples did not know that a lamb would come before the lion. And the Pharisees did not acknowledge that a lamb was needed at all. And that brings us to today. Faced with the exact same quandary, the exact same question. Who is this Jesus? Jesus is asking every person in this room, who do you say that I am? Borrowing from C.S. Lewis' famous example, you are left with three options. He is either liar Lunatic or Lord? Because anybody who can say out of his mouth, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. C.S. Lewis says, anybody who would say something like that, you only have three options. They are lying about what they said. Or, if they're not lying, they are the maddest of mad. They are the craziest of crazy because who in the world would declare to people around them and believe it with full conviction that they were the only way to get to God? Because if not true, they are a lunatic. Or he is in fact who he says he is, the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Today, instead of using the terms lion and lamb, we often use the terms Lord and Savior. And the question is, do you understand who Jesus is? I ask this because the same problem persists among us as it did among those who were present at the triumphal entry, a misunderstanding of Jesus. Yet for people today, inside and outside of the church, our leaning and focus on the person and work of Jesus is not in His kingship and the lion. Our focus is on that of Savior. Rather than seeing one who rules and reigns over the cosmos, demanding that we walk in His ways of righteousness and holiness to whom we should submit and surrender all of our lives, we see and exalt a Savior who has no bite. A Savior who does not demand any more from us than that we pray a prayer and ask Him into our heart. And if we do that, we can basically go on living any way that we want. The world infecting the church has led many astray, The world infecting the church has led many astray telling them that God accepts you as you are and you can remain as you are and still be welcomed into his family and into the eternal kingdom of God. But the full truth of the matter is this. God does and will accept you as you are. But you cannot remain as you are. Most people get it wrong and they try to clean themselves up or get it right before they come to God. Or many believe, I can just come to God and I'm not going to have to change at all. That is not how this works. One, we come exactly as we are. Broken, despondent sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes in the midst of everything's going well in life, you may not feel broken and despondent, but you know you need Jesus. But don't for a moment think you can just come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and him not expect you to obediently follow him. And let me show you exactly how this works in the modern church. Look on the screen at John 3.16. A passage, if you grew up around the church, you will know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We love that verse. But we often leave out what that means just a few verses later down in 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. In the modern church, we we love this idea of Jesus as Savior, and He is fully and completely Savior, yes and amen. But He is also King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why right after He asked this question, who do you say that I am, there are some verses in Mark chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, where he begins to talk about his death and his burial. And Peter, just having accomplished the highest moment in all humanity, because it has been revealed to him that Jesus is the Christ. He says, No, no, Jesus, now you have it all wrong. You're not gonna die. You're not going to be buried. And Peter, and Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right, I mean, how? I mean, can you imagine the moment of the ultimate high of all humanity that Jesus is revealed to you as Christ? To a few moments later, you are being called Satan. Right, I mean, that is the drastic change. I'm that some of you are like that. Okay, I mean, some of you have these Peter-type moments in your lives that you can go from incredibly high highs to incredibly low lows. You should identify with Peter very well. If any of you like me, whoever you know, I speak for a living. You have a habit of sticking your foot in your mouth. Peter is your guy, all right? Go read about Peter. He will inspire you, and he will help you, and yes, Jesus will forgive you, all right? And even restore you, as Kevin talked about um, recently. But see, so Jesus asks this question, who do you say that I am? And then he says he's going to die and be buried and resurrect and then he immediately follows that with this passage. In Mark chapter 8, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, you got to remember, it says Caesarea Philippi, right? It's now, now it's not just the disciples, but the crowd around the temple of Pan. All of these Gentiles, all of these people are around. And he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Whether we like it or not in this life, God has a design for marriage, God has a design for gender, God has a design for sexuality. God has a design for family. God has a design for how we conduct business. God has designed that we should work six days and rest for one. God has designed how we should treat our neighbor, love our enemies, serve his church, give our money, serve the poor and oppressed, rescue the widow and orphan, surrender and submit to his glorious kingship all the days of our lives. We do that by denying our base instincts and urges, something that the Bible calls the flesh. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow King Jesus. But we will only do this in this life if we acknowledge Him as the Lion and the Lamb, as King and Savior. Jesus came the first time as the lamb. He now sits on his throne, sovereignly ruling and reigning over the cosmos. And one day, hopefully soon, he will return as the lion.